Good day, and welcome to episode 47 of the Aaron Wayne Podcast. I got my red light going today. Bought these LED lights, because that's the kind of thing I do. I got a blue one over here and a red one over here. Um, just trying to confuse people that might be colorblind. Figured I'd squeeze in a quick podcast. It's Friday night. My lady and I are, uh, she's coming home here soon and we're going to go out, maybe go to get some, some tacos. Nice little Friday night. I hope you guys are doing well. I, uh, previous podcast that I recorded, um, it got a little heavy, man. I was thinking, uh, thinking a lot about monetary systems, fiat currencies, U.S. China relations. I mean, talk about a snooze fest. But, um, I don't know. It was, uh, sometimes you just got to get stuff off your chest. You just like, I, I think these things and listen to people talk about them and just wanted to, I just wanted to crush it a little bit. I got a whiteboard over my shoulder in, uh, my new podcast space and, uh, I got nothing on it. So all it does is reflect my lights and the lights in this room are controlled by a Google home. Are you listening to me, Google? And the Google Home doesn't work. Every time I say, let's see if it, oh no, wait, I unplugged it. Never mind. Every time I say, hey Google, turn on the lights, it says that it's not connected to the, the internet. And I'm like, well, well, what's the point of this? Why do I even have this thing? But do I want more? Do I want to have little pods that can play music throughout my entire house at the, I feel like, uh, I feel like we miss the, I think we, I feel like we miss the realization that as a modern working class person, you can live in a world where you are the king of a fiefdom and you can just bark commands at these, these stupid things that never work. But when they do work and you say, Hey Google, I, I did this for a while. My dogs, I've never had a doorbell in the entire time that I've lived with my wife and the dogs that I have never have had a doorbell somehow when my dogs hear a doorbell they go bananas and so when a doorbell will play i don't know you tell me if this is mean i'm gonna tell you what i do you tell me if this is like mean or unethical if we're watching tv and a doorbell plays on the tv my dogs will specifically my chihuahua and i think it's just like somewhere in his epigenetic profile he knows what a doorbell it means it means that he's got something he's going to chew the shoes off of but he'll start barking and i'll say hey google play the sound of a wolf and he'll be like how and he does that thing where he like turns his head you know what i mean but he stops barking but it's like you'd think there'd this be this Pavlovian response that if he were to hear a wolf enough times that he would eventually think that the wolves are at the door every time there's a doorbell. Turns out not. Turns out he still barks every time there is a doorbell. What am I supposed to do about that? I don't know. Mm. Delicious water. Speaking of technology, most amazing $20 purchase I've made in the last year wireless keyboard because I have a MacBook and I can use the keys and the keys feel really nice but it's like the wrist pad on the is this I'm gonna talk about it anyway the like 
where your heel strike is of your hand on the keyboard, it's like it doesn't fit right. And also the computer's a bit too close to my face. I'm nearsighted. Sorry I wasn't born perfect. So now I can push my computer away. And I got a little, a little clicky mouse, a little wireless mouse. Beautiful. Probably made by um, slave labor in uh, China. But nonetheless, I have it now. And um, it's useful to me in a sort of fiefdom way. I think I've talked about a fief, fief, ha, having a fiefdom in previous podcasts. I made this joke at my vet school yoga class um, that I was going to start a cult. And uh, they thought it was hilarious. And then I realized like that actually might be a weird joke to make. It's a joke that I've made with my wife before. We've watched... Um, uh, have you seen Wild Wild Country? If you haven't seen that, Bagwan, the Bagwan um, Osho. What is his name? Bagwan Rajneeshi. This uh, Indian guy who had a bunch of disciples in India brought them to the Pacific Northwest of the United States and they built this really intentional, um, for a long time, this is how these, this is why I don't want to start a cult because, you know, they start off real groovy. And then next thing you know, someone's, you know, putting poison in the salad bar, which is what happened at this one. Spoiler alert. But, um, yeah, so I've, I've made jokes like that with my wife, like, hey, I'm going to put on robes, grow my hair really long, and um, speak in very cryptic phrases, speak in parables. Um, then I made the joke at this vet sc- this, uh, this class that I teach. They thought, it was, they thought it was hilarious. They thought it was funny. Hilarious is a stretch. They didn't think it was hilarious. They giggled a bit. But it wasn't like nervous giggling, like, uh, they, they, they thought it was genuinely funny. And then as soon as I said it, I was like, eh. Because that happens in the yoga world. You know, some of the people I follow online, they have, you know, the, you know, they do like men's groups and um, they do retreats and all these things. And I'm always like grappling with this idea in the yoga space of are people, I have a really well-attuned bullshit detector where I can, I don't know, maybe, and maybe I'm off base in a lot of these instances, but, and I'm not thinking of any specific individuals. So if, if, if anybody's listening to this, that does these sorts of things, I'm not really talking about you. I'm talking about the general sense of these things. It seems like, dude, I look crazy with this red light. I just saw a glimpse of myself in the camera. I look like, uh, I look like I have like, I have hives or something, not hives, but like sunburnt. That's what I was trying to say. Whatever. But, you know, a lot of these people in the yoga world, they, they go through these phases of using, you know what it says in the sutras? I'll tell you, even though you didn't ask. The yoga sutras are the, was the first real codification of what it, yoga is. And um, in the first couple uh, lines of the sutras, it says, Yoga Chitta Vritti Narodaha, which is Sanskrit for yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations in your mind, which I think is a really beautiful um, way to describe what yoga is. And that's how I approach it, which is the monkey brain flutters and we live in the brainstem and our culture encourages us to live in the brainstem. But yoga is a cessation of those sort of impulsive flutterings of the mind. That's chitta vritti, uh, C-I-T-T-A-V-R-I-T-T-I. I think there's two T's in vritti. And in the sutras, it talks about, I think what yoga has given me is the understanding that a lot of these 
ancient texts and scriptures and holy books, they, um, at least the way that I access them, and I think that the most useful way to access them is through understanding that they're metaphorical and that these things are not literal truths, they're metaphorical truths. Um, so, you know, the death and rebirth of Christ is uh, the hero's journey, right? See Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung. And I think in the sutras, back to my point about cults, the sutras tell us like you can develop these superpowers as yogis and the, you know, they talk about, you know, in, in different schools of yoga, they talk about like mind reading and levitating and all these different things. And I think that if you take those literally, you look at that and you're like, well, that's not possible. That's not true. Can't happen. And I agree. But I think that the, I think that these ideas are pointing to a metaphorical truth, which is if you are tuned in and you're clear and you're not distracted by things, then you have the capacity to understand what people are thinking. So that's sort of like mind reading and the idea of levitating. Like, I think that you can understand that metaphorically, meaning that you're, you know, you feel light in your body, like a handstand. You kick into a handstand, you feel like you're flying, especially if you land it. You are know, like, if it feels like levitation even though I've never levitated. I learned from David Blaine, not from him, but that was a trick that he did for a while in his street magic thing where he uses the positioning of his body and his feet to make it look like he's levitating like six to eight inches off the floor, which looks very legitimate. And it's such a simple trick that you don't even like, it's like deceptive. It's highly deceptive. Um, And I learned that when I was like maybe in high school from some like CBS show or whatever that was like magic uncovered and I was doing it everywhere and I was doing it really dramatically too like I had my arms out and I was like all right all right I'll try guys I'll see you know I'm kind of tired today but I'll try to see if I can levitate and then I would levitate and it would freak people out all I'm doing is standing on one foot on the toe on my tippy toes and balancing while my other foot covers up the fact that I'm on my tippy toes on my other foot Does that make sense? Just Google it. Check that on YouTube, how to levitate on YouTube. But I think that when your body is open, loose, and full of space, you do feel a lightness. And back to my point, which I said I was back to earlier, but now I'm finally back to the point. So here I am making that point. Sutras say that you develop these superpowers and you, you know, you can use them for manipulation and ill intent. And I think that, um, there's a book called by a guy named Robert Green called The 48 Laws of Power. And I've I read that book and it was it's one of those books that when you read, you think it's a book that when you read it, you sort of hide the fact that you're reading it. Because what I wanted to know is not how to use power over people, but to have a deeper because there there are things that I'm naturally good at. Um and one of those things is um, interpersonal dynamics and persuasion. I'm just like, for whatever reason, that's like a skill. It probably has to do with the fact that I got in trouble a lot when I was a teenager and I had to convince my mom not to um, take my PlayStation away. But I, I ha- so I have that natural gift. And then um, I had read this book by um, a guy I heard on Tim Ferriss's podcast um, named... 
uh, Neil Strauss. That's who his name was. Neil Strauss wrote this book called um, The Pickup Artist. And I read it because I didn't really know what the book was about, but I knew that listening to this author um, on Tim Ferriss's podcast, I was so enamored with his articulation and his, the way that he thinks, the way that he works, the way he like shuts down the internet and like batches his time and is very effective and efficient um, and a really like good speaker. So I got the book, read the book, and it was about these guys, this whole underground world of people, uh, entirely men to my knowledge, that are using psychological tools in order to uh, date more women. And they have programs and, and workshops and things that they do. And I have a lot of empathy for young men who um, just don't have the social acumen to be able to establish romantic relationships. I have a lot of empathy for those people. But this book made it seem as if most of that is, you know, pretty misogynistic and um, oriented around not necessarily uh, establishing relationships, but in um, accumulating large amounts of mates. Um, so that's kind of weird, but read the book if you, if you're interested in, uh, psychology, because he, he ends the book talking about how like his awakening to what this world was up to back to my point to get back to my point from the point that I jumped away from earlier. I read 48 laws of power shortly thereafter. Again, not because, you know, I didn't read pickup artists cause I wanted to be a pickup artist. I've been in a relationship with my wife in, in March of this year. I will have been with my wife for 19 years. Isn't that crazy? I'm 33 years old. Long time. Um, so that wasn't the interest for that book. It was, it was the author that brought me into that. But then I read The Pickup Artist and I thought, okay, there's some people who are naturally good at establishing connections with people. And so another uh, writer that I follow named uh, Ryan Holiday, he wrote a book called The Obstacle is the Way which is a utilization of it's a it's a modernization of stoic philosophy and understanding that we have the capacity to control how we view situations ver- instead of being able to control situations. And I think that's a a subtle distinction but a huge difference. And he was mentored by a guy named Robert Green. And so Robert Green has written 48 laws of power um he wrote a book called Mastery, um, and he approaches his books with the historical record of, um, you know, Machiavellian-style pr- uh, princes and royalty, as well as business people and so forth. And so, I read the Forty Eight Laws of Power, not so that I could exude my power, but to understand how people are either consciously or unconsciously using these tools in order to achieve their means in the world. And so now I feel like I've set the stage to come back to the point that I was starting to make, which is I think a lot of these people in the yoga world that are um, attempting to gather a following, which in some ways I try to do. And why do I do it? I don't do it for finances. Because for the last year during COVID, I didn't get paid almost anything for yoga. Um, so it's not for finances. Um, there is an ego aspect to it. Like I appreciate, it makes me feel good when people think that I am um, providing value to their lives. So maybe there's a bit of ego to it. Um, 
Yeah. So I don't know why I want it to have people listen to me. I don't know. That's, I don't know. Talk to my therapist about it. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that a lot of people are seemingly going back to my bullshit detector. A lot of these people seem to really be full of it. Like that. And I think that they're either utilizing, they're either consciously utilizing the tools of yoga in order to gather a following and then create some sort of like new yoga or, um, you know, resonating with the, um, archetypical human or like all these different things. Like, I think there is need for a modernization of yoga. I also think that there is a need for a demodern modernization of mankind. So like there is a place for these, these programs, retreats, groups, um, master class kind of stuff. I think there is a place for these, but I just, I, I feel like, I feel like everything's been turned into a product instead of a community. And I think that when your finances is, is uh, when you're required to create a product that is utilizing, it's like, it's always been this thing in the yoga world, which is I'm, I have the skill set to share with you tools that will enrich your life and your community but will you give me some money for it? <laughs> it's just like this weird thing. And I, I really don't know how to grok that whole problem, but the tools of yoga, the ability to be clear in your communication with people is an immensely powerful tool. And some people do that naturally. Other people do that through, you know, reading books about how people communicate their intent very clearly and how to do it even more clearly. Um, and I think the sutras warn against that. The sutras say like, you know, you can use these powers and for evil. And, you know, if I were to start this make believe cult, it's like, that's what these, that's what happens to these guys. Typically guys, almost always guys, which speaks to, you know, speaks to the motivations of men and women, right? Like for some reason, men want to, for some reason, men, myself included, I want to be in front of the room telling everybody like how I want everybody. I, <laughs> I want everybody to know how smart I am. And I think that, uh, I think it's fun sometimes, but I think ultimately like that's a fallacy. And I think that's what the trap that a lot of these gurus fall into. And it's also really popular for people to say, like, I'm not interested in being a guru. But it's like, really? There's a part of me that wants to be a guru. <laughs> There's a part of me in there that's like, would, uh, yeah. Like Wim Hof, for example. If you don't know who that is, W-I-M, last name Hoff, H-O-F-F. I follow his breathing uh, practices um, and he also talks a lot about cold exposure and all these different things. And um, it's a powerful practice, but he's, you know, he took that practice uh, from a Buddhist tradition called Tomo, which is um, like a breath of fire, not the breath of fire that you might know, uh, Kapalabhati, which is um, a different, like is a different type of breath. But the, uh, from Tomo, it's, it's basically what Wim Hof is doing, which is like breathe fully in and then fully out 
and you do that 25 or 30 times. And then on the last exhale there, you hold on empty for an extended period of time and then full breath in for about 15 seconds and then rinse and repeat for as many cycles as you're uh, interested in engaging in. But you know, there's this personality that wraps around him and I don't early days. Cause I was into this guy like maybe five years ago from podcasts I was listening to. I don't think that he, uh, got into this game because he um, wanted this. I think he genuinely wanted to help people. Um, he had trauma in his life that um, is explained. If you follow him or if you look for him, he can explain that to you instead of me. But um, he thought that the tools of breath and movement and cold exposure could help to cure a lot of the ails of humanity. And I think I agree with that. I think that, that's a really profound, simple step that can create a lot of uh, relief from suffering in the world. And he started that out and it seemed really genuine. And then, you know, I tuned back in with some of his interviews over the last year and he's like embodied this Iceman thing like this. It's like we become the image that people ask of us. And so like there's there's some phase shift that happens through the process of gaining more people. And I'm conscious of this because, you know, in no way is my podcast or my very localized recognition of my um, of who I am, whether it's in public school or in my yoga teaching. I'm, I'm aware that like I have um, a. I have recognition in my communities that I engage in. And as the podcast grows, that's a third place where I gain recognition in a broader, like non-localized community. And I'm very conscious that as people become more influential, influential in the communities that they serve, the community starts to manifest out of them what it is that the community is looking for, because that's just psychology, right? Like, we it's it's a you know it's positive reward the things that are incentivized through behavior like if you study behaviorism um what was that guy's name it's the father of behaviorism he did a lot of research with rats and he would like have them do really wild stuff like basically trapeze acts with rats what was that guy's name i don't know look it up just you just search behaviorism rats and this guy's name will come up and it'll, it'll come to me as I'm talking, but positive rewards, whether someone is consciously or unconsciously giving you a positive reward for something, it will reinforce in you unconscious behaviors and the, the tools of yoga can help clarify for us. Like, am I doing this because this is authentic or is this something that's being pulled out of me? Does that make sense? I think it makes sense. But you see these people that are, um, you know, people change the more awareness that comes to them. And they feel the, the weight of the crowd around them. I mean, a very tangible a very tangible, relatable example might be if you've ever been in a position where you're speaking publicly 
you if you if you can get past like if you're the type of person who gets anxious when you speak publicly excuse me which happens to me from time to time um but if you're like if you can get past like oh my goodness everybody's looking at me um which some people can't get past um without a lot of practice but once you get past that then you can really be in the flow of the experience of speaking publicly and the first thing you notice is are people paying attention to me and when you notice that people are paying attention to you you know that you're saying the thing that they need to hear or want to hear and when people are tuned out you automatically if you're if you're paying attention to your experience as a speaker you can tell when whatever it is that you're saying is no longer resonant with the group that's hearing it and then you start to experiment there was a there was an experiment that was done and it was um it might not have been an experiment i don't know i'll tell you this anecdote so there was a professor who was professing all of his professes and oftentimes speakers when they speak they'll like walk around a room right a good speaker a good speaker will move instead of just standing in one space and when this speaker would go to one corner the students would look up and pay attention and then as soon as he started to walk to the other corner they would like you know get on their phones or play on their computers or whatever and so they unconsciously put this guy in a corner because the only time that they would pay attention to him was when he was standing in this specific corner and he wasn't aware that he was doing it that's the crazy thing about this anecdote be it true or not i don't even know where i learned this from so you know um i don't know if i read it saw it listened to it heard it whatever but though that's what i'm talking about is that the community unconsciously manifests something out of the speaker that the speaker is no longer con- conscious of so we got to be mindful of that and when I start my cult, I will be mindful. It's obviously a joke. Don't take this out of context. I'm not starting a cult. Does anybody ever start a cult and they're like, you know what? I'm that's I'm start cult. <laughs> I don't think that's how it happens, man. I don't think that's how it happens. I think that somebody starts with like really genuine intent, like Osho. Um, and then next thing you know, you've got seven Rolls Royces and 6,000 acres in the Pacific Northwest. I don't even know if, how big 6,000 acres is, but you know, next thing you know, that's what happens. Start out with some, you know, esoteric, metaphorically true truths. And, you know, three years down the line, someone's poisoning the salad bar. <laughs> oh. All right, I'm going to wrap it, guys. I'm going to be having some din-din with my lady. So, oh, man, I did this last podcast. I wanted to have the music ready and primed up so that I can just exit smoothly out of the podcast, but I didn't. And, uh, oh, no, but I think I have it close. We might have music coming here in a second. Yes. I'll catch you guys on the next one. Follow along, AaronWinyoga.com, at AaronWinyoga.com for all the socials get off social media for a little while after you check out my instagram page um teaching a class at crimpers if you're local to the new river valley also teaching a couple classes at imbalance and yoga teacher training is hitting in january hit me up peace